Welcome to Ending Student Homelessness, a podcast that brings together folks who are committed to understanding and finding housing solutions. I am Misty Blue, a researcher at the University of Minnesota's Center for Advanced Studies in Child Welfare, and I've had the honor of interviewing a series of guests committed to this work. Today's conversation features four professionals working together to address homelessness in Northwestern Minnesota. Brandy Wilkie is the Rental Assistance Specialist for Clay County HRA. Amy Riccio is the Transitional Student Support and Homeless Liaison for Moorhead School District. Sierra Nilan Martinez is the Youth Self-Sufficiency Advocate for Lakes and Prairies Community Action. And Sandra Calix is the Family Case Manager for Churches United Micah's Mission. Take a listen to this two-part episode where this group of professionals is in conversation about challenges and opportunities to address homelessness within their respective roles and in greater Minnesota. So you, all of you and I are recording this on a Zoom call. That's been our practice throughout this series because of COVID-19. We're currently in a a global pandemic and I'm curious about how COVID-19 has affected your work Um, Here at the shelter, it has affected a lot of things. Um, For starters, um, we've really seen an increase in the number of first-time homeless families. Um, And even with the eviction moratorium, I am finding people that have been evicted, and maybe it's because they, you know, don't quite know their rights around that and just don't fight it. Um, So, so yeah, that increase in the number of of first-time homeless, And then, of course, um, you know, we used to be very community-based, and so we were open to the community during the day hours, and people could come in and and get meals and, you know, uh, get some clothing if they need it, different things like that. And so there's a lot of people that we're not able to serve right now uh, because we have to be close to the community. Um, We, You know, our, our, our residents, our guests here do still meet in the lunchroom, you know, for lunch and dinner, but um, it's it's done very differently. It's all social distanced. Um, you know, it's, I mean, it's affected everybody in that way. Um, but, you know, and, and we don't have volunteers. So then, um, you know, the staff are kind of very overworked um, and, and we are understaffed a lot of the time. And so we're, I feel like sometimes we're not able to serve people as we would really like to um, just because of the lack of those resources and um, volunteers. Like volunteers are a huge part of what we do. Um, But yeah, due due to pandemic, we are not able to allow them to come in. This is Amy from Moorhead Schools again, and I would agree um we see some of the same same things an increase in homeless numbers um a lot of this is i would say due to job loss um and relocation so some of these families are are you know they're they're from a different state and they they came here because they have a relative or a friend that has housing here and so they stay with them and end up being doubled up um Another thing, you know, I would I would echo, yes, we have the same issues with um, fatigued staff, um, not doing as much as we'd like to do, um, the, the fact that our schools aren't open to the public, so we can't have those um, face-to-face relationships built as easily. Um, but one thing that I've noticed that I think is very interesting with the, the homeless families um, that we have is there's this 
this deep fear, um, not just the homeless piece, but now they have this fear of illness and they're, they're, they're justified in it. They, many of them don't have insurance or a doctor um, that, they, that they are connected to. Um, they don't have access to that. Um, you know, that, that regular care, if they qualify for assistance, obviously we help them get that. Um, but, but many of them, you know, are just new to this community. And so you're having to reapply and, and start that process over. Um, but I would also say that they're, they're stressed with COVID because in, a, in most of our schools across the state and across the nation, you get options. You get to choose um, as a parent, do you want your child to attend school maybe in a hybrid model or do you wanna do virtual learning? And they get that choice. However, it's a difficult choice because imagine doing virtual learning when you're a homeless, if you're living out of a car or if you're at the shelter or if you are staying with relatives that you know have a home full of you know 10 to 12 individuals and now you need to log in and find a quiet space to do that um, the schools do provide the technology pieces the wi-fi access but that that's just just a piece of the puzzle um, they have difficulty having that one-on-one -on -one quiet space where they can log in not interrupted not not having to multitask and do something else um, so I think that 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 fear coupled with the layer of stress of of doing school um, and then obviously being homeless is a huge huge stressor for them. So my concern is that this is going to lead to some pretty intense uh, mental health concerns, um, as well as I, I'm I will say right now I have a lot of my homeless students that are struggling attending and. Uh, many are giving up. They're saying, maybe I'll do school another time. Um, and if they're old enough, they, they will drop out. Like uh, Amy and Chandra said, a lot of our uh, services up here are open door policy. And so our office has been closed to the public. We don't meet with people for face-to-face -face for paperwork. That has been a nightmare. Um, and to, luckily our funders are gonna be lenient hopefully, when it comes to file audits, because, I mean, that to try to coordinate to get what we need to do the file, but to also provide the service is completely chaotic, and to try to, like, be as organized as possible, it still doesn't help, but I, I think one of the things I noted here is it's still a factor, I think, in the West Central region, but with the peacetime order, I think in a housing standpoint, because I do three different programs, we are not seeing as many people in our area moving because they know about the peacetime order. Um, but that comes with a gamut of issues. I mean, non-payment of rent. There's a lot of lease termination issues that are going to be coming down the pike. And um, we do see a lot of folks coming here from other areas that have job loss, like Amy was saying. I can piggyback off that. Um, but I would say that after COVID kind of relieves itself and peacetime order is over in Minnesota, we are going to see a major, major, major increase in homelessness. 
And we're also going to, uh, we also are seeing right now that the housing market was already kind of fairly tight in Moorhead, but it's getting even tighter because people aren't moving. They're not relocating due to fear of being ill. Um, so even if they're not moving because of a bad situation, they're just not moving at all. Um, and so that's become even more of an issue because we're having a housing crisis now because they're, nobody's moving. And so no, nobody can find adequate housing that meets their needs. And so, yeah, I, I feel like right now we're kind of just uh, rushing to get people housed and trying to beat the winter cold. Um, but I think futuristically with this peacetime order, it's doing good and bad. And in a housing standpoint, we're going to have a lot of issues, <laughs> I think. Yeah, yeah. Under, or under a lot. Well, and definitely just mm -hmm. basically what Brandy, Amy, and Chandra were saying is like there's that peacetime order, that eviction moratorium that was in place at the beginning too. Um, but landlords, there's always something for, their, for a reason or a reason for non-renewals and clients are still having to move during this time. But it's, it's just very tricky because, um, you know, right now many people with the pandemic have the ability to work from home, but really not everybody that we're working with, um, ha at least that I've seen, has been able to stay home. They've been in jobs with service delivery, grocery stores, gas stations, all of those things that are deemed essential. Um, and then also throw on top of that, like they're losing those jobs at the same time and getting behind on those bills. And it's just piling up with your rent, the utilities and things like that. But with all of that um, and all of us as providers, mostly working from home um, has been a really big barrier into how we provide those direct services um, with no face-to-face -face interactions. I'm not able to transport anymore. And that was a huge part of my job because transportation is an issue. It's always been an issue that I've seen. And so it's just, it's affected it really, really, really bad right now. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, each of you have talked a talked about how your personal role or your agency role was at one point much broader and much and had a lot more impact. And due to um, COVID prevention me measures, you really had to scale back and had to um, either stop offering the same services or being creative and trying to adapt. While the adaptations are not, you know, they're not what they they're not able to provide the same experience as they once were. And so um, that's huge. That's huge. And then you also were able to share a little bit about what you see coming in the future of, you know, increased mental health needs, um, housing and, and housing solutions. If you had to say one thing that one action that we could take as a state or as a community that would either prevent more homelessness or be a support now or in the future, what would that be for you? Maybe what is one action that the community community could take that could ease um, the struggle for people or be healing for them in the future? I think um, this is Amy from Moorhead Schools. I, I, I'll give my best guess at this one. Um, because it's not as simple as we'd like it to be. But I feel like the first biggest step would be to become aware of it. 
um, I know we're aware of COVID, but to be aware of how this impacts the homeless population, um, I, I'm not sure that people are really understanding that. Um, it, it's not so easy just to, you know, go get a different job or, you know, maybe your relatives can help you pay your rent. That, that's, that's not how this works. Um, and the impact it has. And the reason I would say to become more aware is that's the first step to realizing that there is a problem or a concern um, and that we could be preventative as a, as a community. Because I really would hate to wait and just see what's going to happen. Because like Brandy said, there's going to be very detrimental things that happen that will affect our entire community and will be very costly for our community. So just to be aware of of what's happening and um, sort of acknowledge and, and try to empower um, other agencies and and the other members in your community to step up and say, okay, we, we have to come around this, um, not just for the adults, but for the children involved as well. Yeah, remaining, yeah, remaining in tune with the families now and going into the future will help us determine, you know, what we're up against and how to confront those, those challenges together. Yeah, I was going to say mindfulness, I think, is be mindful. And I wish the community, um, you know, like I said, I am very happy that we come from the community we do because I hear the struggles in like maybe St. Paul and Minneapolis and those areas. And boy, we are so fortunate to have the resources we have, but it just seems like it's never enough. And, And just to be mindful to the folks that are out there struggling with homelessness. Um, one example for me is either either in homelessness or even upon getting housing. One issue right now with COVID is daycare. Nobody is accepting new kids into daycare because of COVID. So how do you have five kids? You want to go to school. The kid, Maybe three of them are school age, but you have two little ones. Uh, I know personally trying to be home with two kids, one elementary and one infant, and trying to work my full-time job doing distance learning, I about want to go wacko. And I can't imagine these folks trying to find a job. They're a single parent. How do you, how, what, how do you even do a job? I talk to a lot of folks and they say, well, I'm trying to find a job to work from home. And I can't help but empathize and think to myself, girl, I tried it. <laughs> like, you know, I just want to say that. Like, I try it. I, I'm, like, really close to losing the in the sanity I do have. And so I have, I, I just to be mindful of their struggles. Like, I just had a baby in February, and we found daycare in the small community I live in by luck. Living in Moorhead, a larger community, is even a larger issue. You have more people looking for daycare, and nobody's taking new people. Nobody wants to take new people. And if there is a center open, boy, those spots are going to get taken so fast. And so I think that's just one small example of the disparities that people have when they are just trying to tread through the mud with trying to go through COVID itself. Um, It's just such a struggle. makes me think about that. Yeah, staying present and mindful is powerful. So I appreciate you saying that for sure. Um, We've talked a lot about, I think, 
so many important examples of where there are gaps and challenges. Um, if you could re-envision or reimagine a, uh, a housing system, what would be one solution that would be key to ending student homelessness? More housing, <laughs> more affordable housing. Even in our community, we're so lucky that you know we our vacancy rates, well, up to with COVID, have been kind of. They've been better than they have in a long time, but like we bring it back to what we very first talked about, and that's being a board, a sister city to Fargo, and the major difference is the utilities. Is not it's not so much the rent. The rent is fairly lower in Fargo, but not by much. But if you calculate out the utilities that we have to use in Moorhead, they are so high in general. The utility bills are higher for Moorhead citizens. And so in comparison, um, say a unit rent was 770 on both sides of the river for a two bedroom. The utilities for a two bedroom on the Moorhead side are gonna be $120 utility allowance, whereas in Fargo it's $50. Mm. That's a huge difference in how much they can find um, a unit, and it and it decreases the the availability in our area for them to find a unit that actually works with the rental assistance. And so, if I had to choose, I would love to have more units be closer to the FMR because that's where our payment standards are, um, and then our utility allowances. I Oh man, the utilities are so high for the city. Um, I wish that that would be relooked at, I guess, um, because that's been the deal breaker, kind of. Yeah. Is yeah, that unit rent works, but let's talk about the utilities in that house because it's going to be high, and then now it becomes a situation where they they can't be approved for it because they don't have income, and it's a, a very hard thing. Yeah. In my role, is to say no. I'm sorry, it doesn't work. I think it would be important too to have, um, if we could increase the number of case managers um, for families. Um, you know, homework starts with home, they do get a case manager with that, but there's so many other ways they move out of here where they don't. Um, you know, they move into Moorhead Public Housing, or they move, um, you know, on a homeless to house voucher, or, you know, even ish on, you know, paying their own rent. Um, you know, we've had, we've had situations, I had a family that moved into Moorhead Public Housing and they were only there a month and a half before their lease was terminated. Um, and it w if they'd have had a case manager that could have, you know, walked next to them through that, they could have succeeded. And I see that time and time again with um, families that return to homelessness. It's so often if they'd have just had the supports to maintain and stabilize, um, they could have made it. Chandra, I was thinking the same thing. This is Amy from the school, and I, I really, um, I, I'm going to first say we, we have a lot of supports other communities don't. I'm aware of that. But I don't want to become those other communities. Mm -hmm. And one way to do that is what's what I call a warm handoff. Um, you know, when, when you're leaving a shelter, handoff. And right now, yes, homework starts with home, does a lot of that work. Um, but for families that may not qualify for that, they're, um, they're just sort of going at it alone and then there's no sustainability in their housing. So all of that work that was done at the shelter to get them set up, um, it, it falls apart within a couple of months because 
they don't know, you know, how to access a service or, um, you know, they have so many other things going on. They're, they're trying to hold their job and make sure their rent is paid that they don't realize things are falling apart with their kids or um, other things are going on in their life. And then they reach to what they know. So they go to the default and they get into some situations that aren't healthy for anyone, whether that be, you know, dropping out of school or um, using chemicals or getting in a, in a really bad relationship with someone, but they're all doing this trying to, to make it work for them. So if, if there could be some sustainability, and when I say that, I don't mean for a couple of months. I mean, like, homework starts with home. Like, they, they stick with these families for many months, and that's what needs to happen so that there can be some success and you can break that cycle. Um, the other thing that I was thinking of is um, the piece on affordable housing. That definitely is, you know, something that we need to look at and why that is such a gap on the Moorhead side versus the Fargo side. Because um, families definitely want want to stay um, on the Moorhead side for various reasons. Uh, so what I find happening is they're trying and they're bouncing from house to house, and then we we sort of lose them. Um, again, with case management, maybe this wouldn't happen, but we we lose them and they um, they they their kids aren't enrolled in school for months. I have families that haven't enrolled in school yet. And it's already at the second quarter of school, and they haven't. They didn't know how to enroll. They've been bouncing from many communities, um, and so there, there is, there's got to be some kind of safety net, somebody that's going to partner with that family for, for several months, um, or even I'd like to say years if it's possible to to keep them, um, you know, gradually um, teaching them the skills, and then. Um, having them sort of fly on their own. I also think that responding as um, a community is is very important and it's crucial in that collaboration between our federal and state and local partners. It's really going to help in this um, because if you're working together as a community, you're going to you know work better at preventing um, student homelessness and youth becoming homeless when you're able to identify them and work with those families and connect them to those trauma-informed resources and culturally appropriate interventions and to, to meet those needs. So I think it just would allow us as a community, responding as a community um, would create those individualized services. And um, again, just investing those resources to an infect, to an effective um, homeless response system can really prevent and support a lot of those people experiencing homelessness. I think too, as part of our organization, we do own a permanent supportive housing apartment building and it has 43 units of which there's, you know, it's about half and half of individuals and then families. And I think if there could be more sites like that, where because there's staff on site, um, there's there's somebody there 24/7. Um, not always a case manager, but there is some staff there 24 hours a day. Um, you know uh, that building tends to seem more like a community because it's not like your average apartment where um, you don't know most of your neighbors. You know pretty much everybody there knows everybody. 
Um, you know, I can't say that it's always positive, but you know, um, generally, like they do become a support to each other. And um, I, so often, I see people that have um, families and, and individuals that come to the shelter. Their one of their biggest fears about leaving here is loneliness. And so often that's um, a big inhibitor for people to try and even get housing on their own because they don't want to be isolated from everyone else. And now when you add COVID in, you know, people used to go hang out at the library or, you know, various other parts of town and those th they, things aren't an option anymore. So um, to have more buildings that are like permanent supportive housing, um, I think would, would be huge in, in you know, not always just vouchers because vouchers are great and they're needed and they're necessary. Um, but to have buildings where everybody is kind of in that same situation, you know, I think would yeah. be ideal. Yeah. People kind of going through difficult times together. Like, um, what I heard is more affordable housing is, is necessary and there's the need for individualized services. There's a need for, you know, access to utilities and all with the, with the idea of how do we, um, how do we build lasting relationships both with each other and with, well, each other meaning neighbors and community, but also with support people. They're people that are there to help them move through this difficult time. Is that a fair summary? Yeah. And I'd like to add in about, um, support services is, um, that I am, Homework Search with Home is very lucky that we have contracted support services for that particular program. And I'm going to tell you, it took a lot of lobbying. It took a lot of work on our end to say we want more money so that we can support these folks. Is I can give vouchers out all day long, but th what is that doing? That's not doing anything without the support. And so we had continually drilled that over and over and over and over and over since 2013 when we had Cares for Kids. And we finally were able to get a huge bulk of money to support those this program with case management. But then I think about it again, and case management is hard work, super hard work. You're solving people's problems all day long and then going home to try to take care of your own problems. And a lot of these folks aren't paid enough to do that hard work. And so that's why you see the turnover so high. And then what is that doing for the families if they don't have a case manager that's going to be there for the entire time that they're need to be to be successful and it's no it's not any fault of an agency or or anything like that it comes from our legislators and from our states and our fund and our federal funds that if we want people to be successful some people need help but we need to pay those people for the hard work that they're doing and and show them that we appreciate the work and I have no problem sending emails all the time. I'm one of those people that I was a case manager, so I know how empowering it is to get like a, you rock today because you might be having the crappiest day. And to get an email that says, I appreciate you, kind of keeps you going. But it would be nice if financially people were supported in this work that we are trying to do in all different arrays of programs. Um, because Homework Starts With Home is very special, but it has taken a long time to get even there. And even that is still has its moments where 
it just doesn't seem to be enough and the pay needs to be better for some of these folks that are providing that hard one-on-one feet on the ground work even outreach work trying to find these folks i i can't stress it enough Yes. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for joining. And I have learned so much. I just commend you all on this work and I see your passion and your dedication to, um, to the families that you serve. So thank you. And thank you for doing this work. No problem. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the ending student homelessness podcast. This podcast was recorded on Anishinaabe and Dakota ancestral homelands. Indigenous people have historically and paradoxically faced homelessness at disproportionate rates in the state of Minnesota. Please visit our podcast page to learn about ways you can support local organizations committed to addressing this issue. This special podcast series has been created by the Homework Starts With Home Research Partnership, We are a collaborative state university school community project designed to integrate multi-system administrative data and analyze it in order to produce and disseminate high quality evidence pertinent to addressing the state and national challenge of student homelessness.